The Forbes interview is brought to you by WordPress.com. More websites run on WordPress than on any other platform. Create your blog or small business website today and get 15% off any new plan purchase at WordPress.com slash Forbes. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes. This is The Forbes Interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Hello, welcome to the show. It's that beautiful dreaded time of year that everyone looks forward to, tax season. But luckily, we're here with Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, who makes our lives a lot easier and gets us through April into the summer. Scott. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. So real quick, give me a quick breakdown on what Intuit does. You guys have been around for decades. You have many awesome products and different services. What is kind of a rundown and what you guys do? Well, I think it starts with how you pay your bills, something we all have to do every month. Lots of Americans either forget or run late charges, and we prevent that and help you pay your bills uh, on your phone or now even on an Apple Watch with our Mint personal finance service, and that's all free. Then it comes to tax time, yeah. and you got to pay your taxes. So we're the largest preparer of taxes in the country uh, through TurboTax, and you can it'll automatically go collect your data from your bank, your brokers, your uh, employers, uh, and so it can fill out your taxes largely without you having to type, and then it'll make sure you get the biggest refund possible. Now you mentioned Mint. I tried Mint for a little bit, and living in New York City and having Mint is very cruel because Mint <laughs> just tells you, like, you just move out. You're spending too much money. You bl- blow through your budget in four seconds. But um, people love it. And I'm actually a TurboTax user. I've been I got, I converted from the old accounting system about five years ago, and someone told me, Steve, just try it. It's like playing a video game. And it kind of is. It's kind of addictive. And I can't say it makes you look forward to taxes, but it's actually, you learn, for, for me, I learned a ton about how taxes actually work because you can play around with the levers and see what it affects. How did, and it's such a great, you know, I, for me, it's a very simple API and great interface. How did that evolve? How do you guys come up with what a good user interface for TurboTax is? Well, we can go through the history, actually. The first innovation of TurboTax was <clears throat> it actually was had screens that looked like the tax forms. So if you go back 30 years, mm-hmm. the people who did taxes by themselves knew what the tax forms looked like. And so we made it look just like the tax form. So that made it easy for people who knew taxes. Yes. But then we said, there's a much bigger market of people who don't know taxes and don't ever want to learn. So then we moved to a new interface, which was an interview. You don't have to know anything about taxes. It asks you questions in plain English, and you answer in plain English. So it's kind of the original chatbot, to use a word that's trendy now. So that's the TurboTax easy step interview. Mm -hmm. And then we said, well, even better than being asked simple questions and answering them is if you don't have to answer at all because it already knows. So now we've been working for the last five years to find the data that you need to fill in your taxes. And then we go fetch a lot of that for you from your bank or from other sources so you don't have to answer or from your employer so we can move your W-2 automatically into TurboTax. How do you, I mean, it's very easy to use and people are trusting you with a lot of responsibility. Do people mess up? You never hear anything bad happening. How do you make sure that something as complicated as taxes and a a business entity as unforgivable as the uh, IRS, unforgiving as the IRS, 
you, how, com, how do you smooth that process out? Well, I think two things. Uh, one, when you're doing taxes for 30 million people, and in fact, our same tax engines we use to power the tax preparers. Mm-hmm. So if you go to many tax preparers, they use our engine. So we in total do about 60 million tax returns, more than anyone else on the planet. So that means we get a lot of experience to eliminate the errors. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, if there ever is an error, then we pay not only the uh, the penalties, but also any interest. So we, we make you whole if they're ever in that rare, rare, rare case. And that's why, since we're on the hook for it, mm-hmm. that's why you don't find errors in TurboTax. I'm going to go back to the origin of Intuit and kind of your background. Um, you were a you were at Harvard Business School. You worked at Parter & Gamble and then um, at Bain & Company, correct? Mm-hmm. So what made you launch into startups and software and from the outside, it looks like you're on easy street. You had a job that people would love to get. You kind of took that leap and launched on your own. What was kind of the, the timeline there and the motivations? Well, I guess at the core, I'm kind of a product guy. And what does a product guy or gal do? You find some giant problem that nobody has solved, and then you figure out a way to solve it. Mm-hmm. And that's what struck me when my wife complained about doing the bills. She's very good at it. She's mm-hmm. got a mind for numbers. But it was just the time and hassle of every month having to plan, remember, so you don't miss a bill, sit down, pay them at that time, write out a check, fill in your check register, make sure you had enough money in the account. And it was just a hassle. And I said, wait a minute, here's a time and hassle sink that every household faces. I bet computers could do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was back in the early 80s. And so that's what I then uh, hooked up with a, uh engineering student at Stanford, and we designed and coded uh, Quicken as our first product with the goal of ending your routine financial hassles. Did you have any tech experience before? Were you a, did you have a, a coder? Did you, did, you have any, did you know how to work computers back then or at least create programs? I'd never studied it in school. But when I started at that point, you know, there wasn't much in school, but I did teach myself to program when I was in high school. Oh, okay. Uh, though I've what, never, what, what language? I was machine language for an IBM 1620. And I, I've never programmed professionally, but mm-hmm. at least I had that background of self-learning. How did kind of taking those big corporate experiences help you in the startup world? Oh, gosh, it was essential. The stuff I learned at P&G is the core of what we use to found the company. Find that big problem. Find the technology that you can use to solve the problem. Understand the customer benefit. What does the customer want most? Mm-hmm. What are they seeking? And then keep using the technology to keep delivering more and more of what the customer is really seeking. So in this case, when we've talked about when it comes to taxes and personal finance, people don't want to do work. They don't want to have to remember anything. And then they want to get the most money possible, Mm -hmm. the biggest tax refund, and make sure they never pay a late charge or an overdraft. So more money, less work. Those are the benefits. That's what Mint does. That's what TurboTax does. Yeah, it's interesting, especially with taxes, at the end of it, you either get a reward as a tax refund, or you want to avoid that stick, that penalty of, not penalty, but just having to pay taxes. So it's a very interesting outcome, and people have to do it. In ter- at P&G, what did you focus on? Was there a certain product or division that you were with? Yes, I was in the food division of Procter & Gamble, and I tended to work on the shortening and oil products. So Crisco shortening, uh, Crisco oil, were, and some new products were what I worked on. What was like your daily life like? Yeah, so I was the brand manager on Crisco shortening. And you really got two major chunks of work. One is you're trying to figure out how to make the product better to deliver more of the benefit that Mm. consumers are seeking. And for example, in salad dressing, oil and vinegar don't mix. That's kind of canonical. But by using special ingredients, you can get the oil and vinegar to mix better so that the salad dressing stays mixed better. 
as an example of applying hmm. product improvement to try to improve the benefit to the consumer. And the other thing you're trying to do is figure out how to get people to buy more through convincing them that you deliver the benefit through more effective advertising, more effective in-store presentation, so you can convey your message about why our product delivers the benefit that the customer, the consumer seeks better than brand X. How do you take something like oil, which is pretty unsexy, and start marketing and branding and all that? You're onto something. And I think that's the true test of a marketer is when you can take something that's not very sexy or differentiated and help consumers see how it makes their life better. That's the true test of a marketer. <laughs> and I heard back at P&G, you, had a, you were part of a team with some famous alumni in the tech world that came out through P&G. Is that correct? Well, yeah. P&G was quite a, um, a starting ground for talent. So Jeff Immelt, who now runs GE, was there in the food division at the same time I was. Uh, Meg Whitman uh, mm-hmm. was at P&G in another division when I was there. Uh, Steve Ballmer, I helped hire Steve Ballmer <laughs> uh, from Harvard. And he worked in the food division and then went on to Microsoft. Steve Case later did AOL, was at P&G at the same time. Wow. So From food to software, who would have... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there anything special with P&G? These are all entrepreneurs and, and yeah. CEOs. I think there were a lot of com- companies with good feeder systems. They got a lot of talent. That was not distinguished. And P&G was one of a dozen that got top talent. But what was different was what happened inside. Mm-hmm. What you learned about the fundamentals of running an organization to delight customers and to deliver reliably and then convey why people should buy. There's just the fundamentals of running a principle-based business, mm-hmm. not based on uh, flash or sizzle, but based on actually improving people's lives. You know, they were the company that put fluoride in toothpaste to yeah. eliminate tooth decay, that made heavy-duty detergents work so you could use a washing machine. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of invention that we do in technology. Besides personal tax and personal finance, did you have any expertise in kind of the tax accounting world before? Uh, uh, no. no, no. And I think that's why we succeeded. Being naive in a good way and having fresh eyes helped you. What the eyes we brought were the eyes of the consumer, the eyes of the customer. The story of QuickBooks is interesting. We, um, we launched Quicken and Quicken started to succeed after a long struggle. It started mm-hmm. to take off. And we found in... What was that takeoff point? Was there a certain thing that no, really started the scale? Nothing different. I wish there were an inflection point. Mm-hmm. It's just word of mouth, basically, uh, and it's just accumulated. We intended Quicken just for consumers. It's personal finance, just like Mint is today. Mm-hmm. But we found out it was half the users were businesses, and we couldn't figure out why. So we ignored it. It made no sense. And we ignored it. I ignored it for years. And then we went and actually talked to those business users to find out why. Why are you using a home product, a personal product? And what we found out is if you're in a small business, say five, ten employees, Mm -hmm. you don't have room for a CPA on your staff. So the books are kept by some unfortunate clerk or um, uh, spouse of the owner or uh, even the owner. And 90% of the time, these folks don't know a debit from a credit and they don't want to learn. And all the accounting software to before us was built by accountants mm-hmm. who knew accounting. Yeah. And so it used the language of accounting, which is like Greek to normal people. Yeah. But that's what accountants love. We started from the customer standpoint, for the small business standpoint. They don't speak Greek or accounting. We put it in English, their vernacular. We made it easy and obvious. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Small businesses are at the heart of our communities, and they are the places that we couldn't live without. For example, in Pasadena, there's this great bookstore called Romans. It's an independently owned bookstore. It's really big inside. You feel like you can wander around in there and get lost. And there's a great selection, of course, of of books. 
Whether you've been in business for generations or recently launched, creating a website in WordPress.com can make a big impact on your business. Even if you don't have any experience building a website, WordPress can guide you through the process. They have hundreds of customized themes to get you started. Just pick a template and make it your own. You'll get built-in search engine optimization and social sharing. And when you build your website on WordPress.com, you're part of a community with support 24-7 when you need it, get answers to your questions, and get back to getting stuff done. Come see why 27% of all websites run on WordPress. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to WordPress.com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes for 15% off your brand new website. WordPress.com slash Forbes. Hey everyone, I'm Maggie McGrath, a staff writer at Forbes magazine and your new host for a show called Forbes on Trump. Politicians are all talk, no action. I'll be speaking with the editors and writers who are reporting on the 45th president. We'll hear what they're finding out about his wealth, his business associates, and the ways in which he and his policies are affecting the economy, consumers, and all aspects of the business world. Somebody has to come out and tell it like it is. Along the way, we'll dive into Forbes archives, which contain decades of information that will add context to the current White House administration. So listen to this. Listen to this. That's Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. Subscribe now at iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and share. And so you guys are the new entrant. You were the disruptor. What did kind of the uh, old guard of finance and accounting think of you guys? Oh, that's fascinating. The story has two chapters. At, f- at first, they totally disdain- <clears throat> disdained us, saying, well, that's not real. Um, that's not accounting. And we said, yes, that's right. It isn't. It just does what accounting does, but better. And then when, after two months, Quicken became, excuse me, QuickBooks became the market leader. We became the best-selling accounting software in the United States after only two months. And then what happened, interestingly, none of the U.S. competitors copied us. None. They all kept to their inscrutable Greek-style mm-hmm. uh, design. And they all went out of business, except for one that sold itself to a British company. And I asked some of the CEOs, well, when we were the market leader, when we were out selling you many times, why didn't you, like, get the hint? And, and they said, well, we thought you were wrong. <laughs> so all this comes because they focused who knows what they focused on? We focused our our mission, our God, our our customers, and how can we change their lives so much for the better? And that's our compass, and that's what set us on a different track than everyone else. In the beginning, were you kind of running this out of out of your house? Uh, yeah, it was in my den, and then Tom Prue, my co-founder, his dorm room. Okay, mm-hmm. at the very beginning. And then, when did it start to go from you know that scrappy startup to? you know, growing and becoming more of a, I guess, professional or larger kind of an enterprise? Well, step by step. Yeah. You know, we first moved into those, one of those you rent them offices that rents by the, the hour. <laughs> uh, and we had three desks and there were four of us. So I, sl- I sat on the carpet. Then we moved into um, a real office, which the real estate agent called the garden level. Okay. Any other person would have called it the basement. There we go. Yeah. So we were in the basement. <laughs> Uh, you had free pets you didn't, you didn't uh, sign up for down there. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you could see the roots of the garden. Oh, yeah. That's the only part you could see. And then, you know, today we're in the giant, we took over Sun Computers campuses when they left. And how many employees now? About 8,000. 8,000 and about 30 billion market cap-ish? Right in, yeah, in that range. I haven't looked. <laughs> did, you, did you ever like, look around on your Sun, Sun campus and be like, this was in a Stanford dorm room? You know, obviously, you know, 30 years ago, but... Mm-hmm. You know, you get caught up in the day-to-day, so you don't really think about that. But I remember one night driving by the office at night when the 
building was illuminated. Mm -hmm. And I didn't normally drive by the office. Normally you drive into it. And just looking at it there with the lights on, a few people still working late at night, said, wow, all those people are dependent on us for a job. This is their career, their livelihood. Mm -hmm really depends on the decisions we make, both kind of an awe and a, and a feeling of responsibility. You have 8,000 people relying on this company. How does that affect kind of your off time, well, if you I, have any? The, um, the great news is that I was the CEO for the first 11 years yeah. and now have a great CEO working for me. I rest so much easier uh, because Brad Smith is mm -hmm. such a great CEO. And you're, you know, it's it's rare. Like we kind of, the media definitely celebrates the the founders that go from from the dorm room, and then they still keep control, and they can scale the company and be a CEO. And it's a rare because a founder and a CEO oftentimes have different skill sets, different mindsets, mm -hmm. and all that. How did you make that leap from you know let's start this software program to being a CEO for more than a decade of a giant thriving software company? Oh, I'd say unevenly. I, I think your characterization of founders is accurate. You know, you bring a set of skills, but it's a strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason I, I felt after 11 years of doing it that I was not growing as fast as the company was growing and that my skills weren't keeping up. So I was inadvertently doing things that kept the company back. So that's why I went then to outside to find a CEO who, who had, was looking for somebody with complementary skills who had the strengths that I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad I did. What were some of the hardest skills you had to learn through that journey of becoming a CEO? Uh, well, one is... Especially the, with a public company where you have to yeah. be the public face and deal with Wall Street and... You know, it varies. I think the Wall Street and public face part was fine. I mean, I had to learn it because I had no background doing that. But, you know, if you're passionate about what you're doing, you can explain it to people. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest challenges for any founder is when you found a company, at the beginning, you're doing everything. You know, between you and your co-founders. Yeah. You do everything hands-on. But over time, you, you have to give away most of what you're doing to others to do, or you'll never scale and the company won't. And that ability to convey and grow people to do superbly at the things that, that you, in fact, and then to manage people who are much better doing things mm -hmm. than you will ever be, who are better experts, but then be able to contribute to their growth and manage is entirely a learned skill for founders transitioning mm -hmm. to leaders. As a business, or even just as a, as a leader, what were some of what was like the scariest time? Was there a certain a, a in terms of a, a struggle obstacle, whether it was with the business, whether it was with tech, the market that because you know the really tough in the trenches kind of moments? Oh, I'd point it point to two. One was the f uh, after we launched because pre-launch it's a honeymoon because you haven't hit reality yet. Yeah. But as soon as you launch, now you're hitting the real world. Will people buy? And we had no money. Venture capitalists would not invest in us. Mm -hmm. So we did not have the money to market it, and we almost went out of business twice. I mean, we came within a hair's breadth of – we were out of money. We had, had to stop paying salaries. We had to give back the rented computers and the rented furniture. Wow. I mean, it was – and there was no obvious way out of that hole. It, uh, that was quite scary, and for quite a while, this was not a month or two. This yeah. was a, a year and a half of – so that was scary, number one. How do you shoulder that <clears> – <throat> Emotionally, A, and then B, how did you get out of that hole? It was personally very daunting. My, my marriage really was on the rocks then because my wife's a great woman but a planner. Mm -hmm. She's the ultimate planner, and we had no plan. We tried every bit of the plan, and yeah. it didn't work. So that was quite a struggle. Wow. Fortunately, she had a good job so I could keep – we didn't lose the home or anything. And it was just at that point we didn't have the money to change the product. It was all a search for sales. 
How could we find revenue? And we went months with no revenue. So eventually, I was the sales force, so I was on the, at the time, so I was on the hustings, and we eventually convinced a bunch of banks to buy product from us and mm-hmm. resell it to their customers. And that brought in enough revenue. And to, you, just go, you just driving door to door kind of? kind of Well, going in from yeah. bank headquarters to mm-hmm. bank headquarters. Yes, yes. Um, Fan, the, fancy door to fancy door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember meeting with one bank, big national bank, and the final presentation of management wasn't given by me. It was given by one of the bankers mm-hmm. who was convinced this was a great idea. And he was also convinced that the bank would move so slowly unless he could mm-hmm. get them to move rapidly. So he started to talk by, remember when you go through the rotating doors on the first floor, there's a sign on every one. It says, please move slowly. Mm-hmm. He said, everyone in our building has learned that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for once not to do that. So I thought it was a piece of humor. The second scary time was in 1990 when Microsoft told us they were going to launch a competing product mm-hmm. against, against us. Uh, and they proceeded to launch a competitor to Quicken, a competitor to QuickBooks, and a competitor to TurboTax. Well, you hire Steve Ballmer, and that's thanks you get. Yeah, oh, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, well, and it, one can't now appreciate the predominance, the domineeringness of Microsoft at the time. Yeah. Imagine today combining Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook into one company that had crushed every competitor they'd ever faced crushed, literally decimated, to, to pounded them yep. to dust. That's, that was Microsoft in the early 90s. Mm. And the profound sense of fear, pervading sense of fear. That, I mean, I, I, I got some feeling for what small countries around in World War II and Eastern Europe must have felt like as the armies just rolled through them. Yeah, wow. And you, because they literally rolled over everybody. And here we were tiny little, I mean, that was, I mean, our very existence was at stake. And we're taking a quick break to say thanks to our sponsors for making the Forbes interview possible. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day good. Phone charge to 100% good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. And how'd you get through that? Because that was back, I mean, that, that was, I think that was when I first started using computers. You know, that OS, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was Microsoft Windows, whatever, and all the programs came with it. So it's like, why, why yes. buy TurboTax or buy, buy Quicken when it, it comes with the... comes with stuff. Yeah. And you're right, at the time... Um, Microsoft-based computers accounted for 96% of the computers. Only 4% were Macs. So you, had, you were dead if you couldn't get it to work on uh, and win on Windows. Uh, and we had no Windows products, and they were launching on Windows. So they were launching where we weren't. Even worse. Where, where were you then? We were on DOS and on Mac. How do we get through that? You know, great work from uh, uh, Intuit leaders. Um, we had a uh, a technical leader, actually a business and technical leader named Eric Dunn, who made this his mission. And he took a small team and he rapidly created a Windows version of Quicken. So we launched only a month after Microsoft launched. Prior to that, we had no Windows experience in the mm-hmm. company. And then a marketing plan from a woman named Mary Baker, who was our marketing head then, that was so aggressive and so pro-consumer. We slashed price. We made it so easy to buy that once we launched the Microsoft product faded and Quicken for Windows became the clear leader in overnight, thanks to that combination of the work by Eric and the work by Mary and the teams that they, that they had managed, people working night and day, knowing that if we, if we didn't do this, 
we'd be an asterisk in the annals of history. And was the Windows product very, was it a, uh, did it take a lot of inspiration from Quicken? Oh, it was. It was Windows Quicken. So it was yeah. very, it was very Quicken inspired. Well, I'm sorry, but I mean like the Microsoft product. Oh, yes. Yeah, the Microsoft it, it was, product. Was a clone kind of? Yes, it was a clone type design. In fact, as an example, in uh, Quicken, we had a little uh, two-tone beep whenever you recorded a transaction as an audio cue. It had been successfully mm-hmm. stored. And the beep went dee Interestingly, Microsoft Money had the same beep in the same place in the same two tones. So, yes, and that's part of what ultimately happened. While they were copying us, we were continuing to move forward to better understand mm-hmm. our customers and to better deliver the benefit that they wanted most. Why did you end up on Apple first or before that? We launched on the IBM PC and DOS originally. That was mm-hmm. our first version. Yeah. And then we moved to Apple II, and then we moved to the Macintosh. Did you work with Steve Jobs at all? We were so little back then, it's not that he would have noticed it then, but then later on, yes. Mm-hmm. We were one of the reasons that he wanted to make sure that our products, Quicken and TurboTax, stayed on the Mac during the dark times for, for, for the Mac because they were so popular with consumers. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. Talk about this evolution. I mean, you, you, you were coding back in the day on, on machine, machine language. And then I, I imagine back, you know, to install Quicken, it was, you, know, you probably had a playing deck cards worth of, of hard of floppy disks to install. Now, fast forward today, we're here with at the, your big innovation showcase and people are filing taxes on their iPhones. Mm-hmm. There's AI, there's machine learning. How'd you get so large, 8,000 employees, but kind of keep innovating, keep that founder's mindset and staying up to date with the ever-shifting tech world? Yeah, I think it's a combination of two things. One, never being satisfied with where we are today. You know, our goal is to give every customer a lot more money mm-hmm. with no work and complete confidence. And that's what we've been trying to do from the beginning. And we still have so much more to go. There's still more money we can make for our QuickBooks users Mm -hmm. and for our Mint users and uh, more money for TurboTax. We can still do it with less work. Nobody wants to spend their time doing taxes. And we can increasingly make that happen and complete confidence. We're running tests right now on how we can give even more confidence to taxpayers. So keep focused on what's uh, on the ideal, on what our goal Mm -hmm. is to deliver the ultimate benefit for customers. And then that's half of the puzzle. The other half is then great, clever, creative technologists and product people and design people who can then help figure out how to get there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing we do is track mileage because if you're in a small business, your miles are deductible that you drive on business. And there's a big deduction. It can give you cash in your pocket of two and $3,000 a year by writing off those miles. But in order to write off the miles, the IRS requires that you keep track of every trip, the starting odometer, the ending odometer, the date, and the purpose, or at least the destination. Well, that's such a hassle that most people never do. And and who checks that? Uh, Well, the IRS tends to focus on auditing small businesses Mm. because they know people don't keep the records very well. So it's an easy place for the IRS to come get you. Mm. Um, So what we do is equip any small business with a piece of software called QuickBooks Self-Employed. And it has a mileage tracker in it. And so it tracks when you're doing trips. And then you... Is that, you, on, is that via phone? Uh, using your mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. using your smartphone. And then you just quickly, with your thumb, can swipe the trip saying, that's business, that's personal, personal, business, business. So 
contemporaneously, you're keeping the records the IRS uh, requires, and you can then deduct the exact mileage, and it's totally audit-proof. But there was a problem. The problem was it drained your battery. <laughs> and other people's mileage trackers do the same thing yeah. because they ping your GPS, and the GPS is a battery hog. So two clever engineers thought about the problem and said, wait a minute, we could avoid pinging the GPS all the time. If we looked at the motion sensor, we did these other things, and we interpolated, and then we don't have to ping all the time, and we can reduce to the battery drain to de minimis. Mm-hmm. So we have a set of patents on that. That's now in QuickBooks Self-Employed. And it's, so you get the benefit of automatic mileage deductions mm-hmm. and all the cash in your pocket, yeah. thousands of dollars, with uh, no noticeable effect on your battery. That's what clever product people and engineers will do. And where do you think, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, and that that's a very cool feature. And then in five years from now, people, people be like, I can't believe I used to do that. Because as we get for you know, self-driving, everything, connected cars, yeah, self-driving yeah. cars, and just kind of right now, you know, FinTech is off, is the hot industry, one of the hot industries people are investing in. I have a two-year-old son. And hmm. in, let's say, 16, 20 years when he's doing taxes, will he be doing taxes? Well, not if we're in charge. So the next step in the journey that, uh, and in the direction you've described is let's now provide intelligence mm-hmm. and move to an intelligent economy where the intelligence is baked in the system using all the data from all the users. So for the example we were just on, on mileage tracking, it should be able to know, increasingly learn over time which of your trips are for business yeah. and which are personal, and then it will automatically expense the business trips and not the personal trips because we'll be looking at the pattern. Similarly for taxes, as we get more and more of the raw data, which we're working with financial institutions and others, then we can apply more machine learning. And we're already doing this by going through the data on 16 million taxpayers. So we help decide whether you should take the standard deduction, mm-hmm. which in taxes mean you save a whole bunch of work, yeah. or do what's called the itemized mm-hmm. deduction, which is more work. Now, it used to be the user had to figure that out. Now we can recommend yeah. based on machine learning on your data. Paychecks have gone away. Invoices have all, it's all been digitized. You know, everyone's using phones and plastic. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, American Express knows you know, where you're headed based on where you're, you don't have to call them, say, I'm, I'm going to LA because they can just tell from your charges that you, you're prepping for a trip to LA and they don't worry about the cards being, you know, it's not mm-hmm. stolen. It, they know mm-hmm. what's happening. I mean, you got to figure this is all, all this AI machine learning yes. is going to almost become absolutely just background operating system and you get like a number at the end of the year of what the, the taxes take. Uh, and that's what we're working on because nobody wants to spend their time doing taxes. On the, the public-facing side, on the IRS and government side, are they on the curve too in terms of using all this new technology, machine learning, or are they still doing it the same way they did it you know, 50 years, not 50 years ago, but I'm saying are they, are they well antiquated, well behind the curve in terms of everything that the the consumers doing and the small businesses are doing? I think it's a mix. Um, I think on some things like fraud prevention, we uh, and the other tax firms help the IRS by providing information that allows them to help detect any tax fraud and prevent it. And they've been very successful in the last uh, year and a half preventing a lot of tax fraud. So they've done a really good job, improving job there, you know, the IRS and the states. At the same time, that's a tough thing they're in. They, they get limited budget and they have to handle this crush of tax returns for a system that's way overly too complex that's, that's imposed on them by the lawmakers. So it's a tough challenge they face. They, uh, they have a hard time keeping up with what they're doing because it's a pretty hard game they're in. Do you get audited every year? No, I don't. I, uh, I have gotten audited, but not every year. Taxes are in everyone's mind, whether it's 
corporate tax or Obamacare tax or just all these plans throwing around. Have you um, ever worked, been called in with Congress or the White House or even the IRS to maybe for advice or help streamlining policy? Or Well, I think it breaks into two parts. Yeah. When it comes to um, uh, tax fraud, electronic filing, places like that, we're definitely called in. We're the center of the conversation with the IRS and the states. When it comes to what the tax policy should be, you know, what should be deductible, what shouldn't be, what the rates, that we let Congress work on. That. Yeah. That, that's not a process. We, our job is to help automate and make simple whatever the tax law is. We don't actually think we have a role to say what the tax law should be. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are places where we play a definitive role in other areas in small business financing. So it turns out with recent legal law changes stemming from Dodd-Frank and that, banks are lending less and less to small businesses. Mm -hmm. And they're lending less and less, particularly the smaller small businesses. So we and others have stepped into the void there by – because we have a richer source of data. This is another place where the future will be different Mm -hmm. than the past. The past is if you're a small business and you want a bank loan, you'll spend on average 33 hours of form filling and data gathering just to try to please the bank. And then you get turned down 70% of the time. Hmm. So all that time's wasted 70% of the time. So we're revolutionizing that by allowing you to apply for a bank loan in minutes because we collect all the data inside Hmm. QuickBooks, rich data that you don't have to sit there and do by hand. And then that gets you a higher approval rate and we've got businesses who get loans. QuickBooks financing is the feature inside QuickBooks. Mm-hmm. We've got businesses who are turned down by everybody they talk to, would have had major business problems because they couldn't get a loan. They got a loan through us. In fact, there's one business in California, delivery business, uh, Perfect Delivery in Fairfield, California. They, after searching for a loan, finally somebody said, we'll give you a $100,000 loan, mm-hmm. but you have to put up 100000 of collateral. Well, they found... QuickBooks financing inside QuickBooks, we gave them through our lending platform a $100,000 loan with none of that ugly collateral. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of breakthrough that you can have using the power of data and the power of then machine learning to make work go away and get people more money or more money faster. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. When it comes to checkout, consumers have come to expect a wide range of payment options. Or to be more accurate, there are a wide range of consumers out there and every one of them expects you to offer their preferred payment method. You can look at this as a hassle, but Braintree would suggest you look at it as an opportunity. When you rethink your payments, it's easy to let your customers have it their way. Braintree. Rethink Payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. What in tech right now is really exciting you? Oh, gosh. Let's see what. Um, I think the number of matchmaking platforms out there that help people find work mm-hmm. and find what they're looking for. Um, what's your, what's the, what catches your eye in terms of job seeking? or Just a plethora of places that people can find freelancers. You know, the freelance economy mm-hmm. is exploding. Uh, it was 12% of uh, American labor, uh, America's workforce was in freelance work two decades ago. It's 34% today, slated to go to 43% Mm -hmm. in just a few years. This is the biggest change in work in the United States, and it's happening in other countries as well. And yet the freelance worker doesn't have the tools around them. So there's lots of problems that we're diving in to try to solve. You know, one problem is the freelance worker has to keep track of all these expenses. Yeah. Because it's all deductible. Any business expense, or like we talked earlier, mileage. But there's no good system 
because they commingle mm-hmm. all their spending with their personal inside one credit yeah. card, one checking account. So QuickBooks Self-Employed keeps all that track of all that. It disentangles all that. So then you can do your taxes, your business taxes, almost in a push button. Then we're trying to help people. One problem is you get your Uber paycheck, mm-hmm. but you can't spend all that money because you've got to pay some of it in taxes and self-employment taxes. But how do you know? So self-employed workers often get into a pinch because they spent the money that would have been deducted off mm-hmm. their paycheck had they been a W-2 worker. But because they're a freelance worker, they get the gross amount, not the net. So we're working to help them figure out what's safe to spend so they don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And then to file the taxes. Either. So we're working soup to nuts to solve the problems for the biggest growth sector in the economy, which is freelance work. Mm-hmm. Quick question. I mean, obviously, you... I mean, you guys are doing a hundred different things, but are you tethered to the rhythm of of tax season at all? Of like service versus innovation versus yeah, it splits uh, in our divisions uh, for uh, businesses like Mint, for QuickBooks, uh, all that's all year long. Yeah, you're helping businesses continuously all year long, and you're helping consumers avoid late bills and pay things with just a tap. That's all year long. Um, then there's the TurboTax business, and boom, that's got a big season. You know, it's all hands on I mean, deck. It's like right you're, now. Is your all your revenue almost in one quarter for, for TurboTax? Uh, for TurboTax, it's spread into two quarters. Yeah. Uh, for the rest of the businesses, it's all four quarters yeah. because most of our revenue now is you know the SaaS revenue mm-hmm. that comes yeah. in all year long. So cool. Well, yeah, I think this is. I really appreciate the time. This is great. Thanks for coming in. Sure. Glad. Is to. there any um, anything else you want to cover or talk about? Anything exciting? No. You reminded me that the, if there was one overview we've really glommed on to kind of our central raison d'etre why do we exist Mm -hmm. and i think to attract great people my advice to an entrepreneur is find a cause that you attract people the great people today don't just want to work for a paycheck no um or a promotion they want to work for a mission they believe in something that changes the world fundamentally for the better And for us, that's powering prosperity all around the world. Mm -hmm. Across from the newest person in the workforce paying bills or having to do taxes to uh, entrepreneurs with strident businesses growing beautifully, Mm -hmm. how can we grow prosperity, jobs, and liberate people from the things that take away from that? And what what, what kind of things are you targeting? How how do you build that prosperity? Well, I think it starts with how do you define prosperity? Yeah. And part of that's more money. Yes. I don't think you can separate that. So by allowing people to get more business in their business, to find more business, to be able to handle more business in their business, to be to get people to lose less money to taxes, mm-hmm. keep more of that in their own pocket, to lose lose less money to bank late charges and overdraft charges, keep more money in their pocket, uh, lose less money to H&R Block and keep more money in their pocket. Mm-hmm. Those are ways you get more money. And then time. You know, if you just had more money but you didn't have time, that's not prosperity because you want time to be with your family, time to be with your kids, time to do what you love. So a lot of what we try to do from the beginning has been how do we eliminate the time and hassle required um, to simplify the business of life Mm -hmm. around us, Um, whether that's preparation of taxes, running your business, tracking your bills, all that stuff. Where can we eliminate the ugly time and give people more time Mm -hmm. for life? And more money for life. Is this ugly time a global problem? Yes. Are there any? Is there any country or any region that, like you know, that government has it has it right? Uh, there's a couple of bright spots. The bill pay system in Spain is probably the world's best and has been for almost 20 years. So that's a that's a bright spot. I'd say the uh, the tax system in uh, in Hong Kong is elegantly simple. 
many countries have a VAT tax, most countries, and that has some elegant improvement mm-hmm. in in total in how the tax burden works and how the reporting happens. If that's, you have that's software, the, basically the luxury spending or the that's a sales tax. No, it's a it's an embedded. It's kind of measures whatever a business adds value, then a little bit of that value gets taxed, mm-hmm. and then when you export that's refunded. So there's no tax on exports, which mm-hmm. makes your exports more competitive. So that's a system that's worthy of emulation mm-hmm. here. So there are some bright spots out there. However, all, all these systems take time and hassle. And particularly for freelance workers, this growing trend of freelance around the world, there, there's a lot more time and hassle than just being a W-2 employee. Yeah. And that's a big opportunity. That's not, not been solved uh, in our country or other countries. <laughs> What's the worst tax code you've ever seen? Of a country, what country has you said the, the best? Which one has? Yeah, the worst? I think by there are statistics on this, and if you look at the total hours spent by businesses to conform to the tax laws, there is a world class winner. One country stands <laughs> head and shoulders above the rest in total amount of hours it takes, and that's Brazil. Brazil, yeah, yeah I think Brazil is like fifteen times more hours to comply with than the United States, and we're kind of middle of the pack. Who would have thought? I thought they were playing soccer all day long. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there is a, and they're football and taxes, in and they're quite aware of it in Brazil. This is not a surprise, and this is on um, uh, data that's publicly available. Uh, yeah. So I, we, I was just in Brazil, and we have a small operation in Brazil to start chipping away at that problem. I can only imagine. Well, Scott Cook, thank you so much for joining today. Okay, it's good to be here. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Everyone sells today. So how do you bring your best sales game every day? Simple. Listen to the Advanced Selling Podcast on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Bill Kasky. And I'm Brian Neal. Each week, we answer listener questions like, how do I compete against a cheap competitor? And Brian's favorite, because he always has an answer to this, how do I meet with a CEO when they won't even return my calls? The Advanced Selling Podcast is where the best go to get better. Listen Mondays on Podcast One and on iTunes. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.